Coming up on today's show, I report back from a failure that led to a couple of cold nights. Alex has been shocking and jiving, and we have a pick for you pack rats. I'm Chris. And I'm Alex, and this is Self-Hosted. What did you end up buying on Prime Day then? (laughs) You got me. I actually almost avoided it entirely, but for some reason in the evening... Maybe I'd had a glass of wine. I had a moment of weakness and I opened up the Amazon app and they had the Fire Tablet, the new 8-inch, I guess it's quote unquote new, on sale for $50. $50? It's nothing. I know. And so I, and I'd already been thinking, in fact, this is probably why I opened the Amazon app, is I'd been thinking I'm ready for a second wall-mounted, always-on home assistant display. And I don't know if I love the Fire tablets, but I could be pretty happy at fifty dollars. What about you? Did you uh, did you get anything? Uh, so there's two categories of Prime Day purchases, aren't there? There's the ones that you tell your wife about, and the ones that you don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm only kidding, but I don't know uh, you're not because I also just remembered, and I don't think I've told the wife yet. I went ahead and got a Soda Stream. Oh wow, 1980s cool. They want their Soda Stream back. <laughs> I drink water in the studio all the time and I'm getting kind of bored. I've been doing I I've been doing it forever, just nothing but water during the day. And and I want to spice it up a little bit. So I picked up yet another TV. Uh this one's for my kitchen. Oh my. A kitchen TV, Alex. That's what tablets are for. Well, yeah, well, I mean we've we've been using my iPad for that for for a little while, but I don't know, like when you're cooking, there's something about just having that big display on the wall and so I bought a 43-inch TCL TV thinking it would be the same as the other two that I have uh, with the Roku built in. I didn't even look, just bought it from from Target actually, not Amazon. It was $179. So it was really very, very cheap. Wow. And uh, it comes with Android TV on it, would you believe? Not, But not Google TV? <laughs> it says Android TV on the box. Oh, right. But it's not Google TV, right? It's not. No, I know, I know what you're saying. Like it's It's supposed to be the same as what's on the new Chromecast, but it's it's different. It's the same as what's on the Shield. Ah, okay. That's great. How's the performance? Performance is what you'd expect from probably a three or four year old processor that they've put in there. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. It does the job. It's a, it's a very bright, punchy TV. It, it's not going to win any awards, but for the price, I don't really care. Well, here's the question. Are you going to attach any external set-top boxes to it, or are you going to use the built-in Android? Well, that's what I bought the Chromecast for. Oh. <laughs> but now I don't need it. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> so now what are you going to do? You're going to keep the Android TV on there and then, oh, you know, that Chromecast, you could always just use it as a travel device if we, if we ever leave the house again. Yeah, maybe. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, really, but uh, it's interesting. and it's, it's amazing what you can get for the money these days, really. Yeah, I did see a lot of really good deals on TVs. I couldn't believe my eyes on some of the deals during Prime Day. I'm not in a place to really just hang a TV anywhere, <laughs> so I didn't get one. But now that I think about it, you know, maybe as a business expense for the studio, I should have thought of something because I could always uh, use another screen in here. <laughs> well, it's Black Friday again before you know it. Yeah. <laughs> so coming up shortly, I'll talk to you about some of my hard drive purchases. But first, this episode is brought to you by a cloud guru. Tech moves fast, and so does ACG. Their courses and labs are always online and obsessively updated. Plus, they curate all the news on AWS, Kubernetes, Linux, and more. Stay up to date at cloudguru.com. So, Alex, you also got some drives, and you've been doing some shucking and jiving, I understand. <laughs> Indeed, I have. I think, that, I think I might classify this as a hobby now. I seem to do it really quite often. So I bought uh, five different chucked drives or five different USB enclosure drives, mostly so that I could report to everybody here what the different types of drives on the market are and the prices and that kind of stuff. Interesting. Okay. I bought uh, a 10 terabyte easy store from Best Buy, which was $189. And I bought that about a week ago because I found out after my ZFS snafus a couple of weeks ago that uh, one of the drives in the mirror was... uh, failing smart. So it's time to replace that one quickly. The others that I bought, I bought a pair of 10 terabyte Seagate USB 3 drives, which I think were about 179 again. Oh no, those two were actually on Amazon warehouse deals. So I got those for like 150-ish each. And then um, the final two that I purchased were actually on Prime Day because they were uh, Best Buy were matching Amazon and they did 
12 terabyte drives for 169 a piece. So I got two of those as well. And what's really interesting between all these different drives is you don't really know what's going to be inside the box until you crack the case open. And, you know, a few years ago, I shucked about 10 or 12 10 terabyte easy stores and uh, they were all purchased within a few weeks of each other. And so my logic for buying more drives now is that if one or two drives are starting to go now, the chances of others from that batch going is probably decently high. I agree. They've been subjected to the same environmental conditions, the same vibrations, humidity, workloads, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's it seems logical to start replacing those drives a couple at a time, you know, every six months or so, or whenever Best Buy has a sale, really. Now, those people in Europe that want to do this kind of thing, you obviously don't have Best Buy over there. But Amazon do have some good deals. So use camelcamelcamel.com to go and track the prices of different things on Amazon. And then you can see what the historical highs and lows were. Bear in mind that US prices don't include tax and European ones do. The cheapest I saw was about £200 or so for a 10 or 12 terabyte drive. So just keep an eye out. They are there. They are a little more expensive than over here, but they do exist. So we'll start off with the 10 terabyte Western Digital drives. A couple of years ago, you used to get rebadged Hitachi storage 10 terabyte helium drives, which ran cool. They ran quiet. Everybody suspects that they were actually 7,200 RPM drives that didn't quite make the cut and were kind of underclocked in firmware to 5,400 and rebadged and sold through the Easy Store program. Nowadays, in the 10 terabyte Easy Stores, uh, they seem to be putting in air-filled drives. And that doesn't sound like a big deal, helium versus air, except for the fact that in my testing at the moment, and I'm burning all of these drives in right now, and I'll talk about that more later. Uh, I'm burning these drives in at the moment, and the air-filled drive is running about 10 or 12 Celsius warmer than the helium-filled drives. And that's that's quite a lot. It's sat right now at 52 Celsius, mm. whilst the helium drives right next to it are at 40. So Interesting observation there. Yeah, if you don't like heat, take that for what it's worth. You know, if if heat kills hard drives. You do wonder if that would multiply too, if they were really smashed together, would there be even more extreme differences in the temperatures between the helium and the air filled? Yeah, I think, you know, it's heat heat is gonna it's gotta go somewhere, you know, and hard drives don't need a huge amount of airflow, but they need some. And, you know, as, as long as they're getting that gentle breeze over them, they'll generally be okay. But a lot of NAS cases and server you know, home server grade chassis don't have the best airflow in the world. So you've really got to pay attention to those temperatures. Somebody was asking me on Discord, how hot is too hot for a hard drive? And I, I generally try and keep things in that 40 degrees or lower range. Often it'll go up to 45 at a max, you know, on a particularly hot day. And I generally think that's fine. But my, my rationale for that is if you look at the data center environments, most of those are kept between 20 and 24 Celsius. And, you know, my basement fluctuates a little bit either side of that, but generally speaking, just through natural convection, it keeps pretty much at that temperature. You know, if if you're aiming to keep these drives at 45 or lower, you're probably having them in a similar kind of state to what a data center would be. And because data centers buy so many hard drives, you've got to imagine that that's how people engineer, these companies engineer those drives to succeed well in those temperatures. Now, before you shuck a drive, there's a few different considerations that you've got to make. You don't want to just run a full smart test and then burn the drive in in the enclosure with no fan on it, because very quickly you'll see your drive temperatures going north of 60 Celsius. Because those enclosures just aren't built for you know stress testing enclosures. They're, they're basically built for someone to just dump a few you know, bits of drone footage onto or some some movies or something like that and uh, just stick it in a drawer and forget about it. They're not really designed as performance type things, which led me on to another train of thought. I was thinking, well, how performant are these drives? So I had my uh, air-filled 10 terabyte drive. I got a pair of helium-filled 12 terabyte drives. In the Seagate boxes were a pair of uh, Barracuda Pros, which normally sell for about $300 each. Whoa. So I was very pleased with that. What yeah. the heck? <laughs> That's a great score. 
Yeah, no SMR stuff, which is nice. They're all CMR drives. Uh, so that's something else you want to try and watch out for. But the whole purpose of me burning in these drives now and stress testing them now when they're, you know, only a few days old was actually borne out perfectly for me by the real orange one over on the Discord. And he has a two month old hard drive, which is failing. And he's now having to go and do an RMA with Seagate. I mean, they'll replace it. It's under warranty. That's not the issue. The issue is when hard drive manufacturers replace drives, they almost always send you a refurb. Yeah. So put yourself in his shoes. He's now got a two-month-old drive that's a refurb. That's not great. No, and you wonder why it was sent in the first place. And of course, a failure in a disk like that's either going to happen early in its lifetime or on the average about, what, five years later? It's the bathtub curve. It is indeed. The whole idea between stress testing them now is to weed out the weaklings whilst I'm still within my Best Buy or Amazon or Newegg or, or whatever retailer's return policy. So I can just send it back to them and make it their problem, not mine. Just reshack. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, it's not the retailer's fault that Western Digital made a faulty drive. Yeah. But equally, it's not my fault and I don't want to commit data to it either and then have to copy all that data off in a couple of months' time. And it's just... It, for me, it's it's a it's about a day per terabyte to do the burn-in. Now, I've written a blog post about how I do burn-ins. I use um, bad blocks to do it. And yeah, it takes about a day per terabyte. So I'm looking at 12 continuous days of burn-in here. But I think it's worth it. That is definitely a peace of mind test. That long of a test really is going to genuinely stress that disk. Um, I would actually have a pretty good peace of mind after going through that. My question to you is, is maybe with the Barracudas aside, none of these really seem like necessarily server grade disks. Is that part of why you're doing this? I don't think they are. I mean, so, some of them are rebadged Hitachi uh, Ultrastar drives. Some of them are rebadged Western Digital Red drives. It's this kind of whole situation with the white label drives that go inside the Easy Stores. You know, a couple of years ago. You used to sometimes actually get red label drives. They didn't even used to have a separate SKU for the uh, the Easy Store drives that, that went inside them, the white labels. But now they've cottoned on to the fact that we've cottoned on to the fact that they are shipping seconds, basically, in these boxes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they know we know that they know. Now we all know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think it's kind of an unspoken, you know, just, yeah, okay, we'll sell you drives, but you have to put a bit of effort in and take them out of the case which is a five-minute job per drive, as long as you've got a couple of guitar picks and a screwdriver with a Torx bit on it, you're fine. I mean, it's it's really easy. So uh, there's no fear there. But somebody was, was talking to me, and this wasn't on Discord. This was, uh, this was at work, actually, saying that they thought that these drives were slow and that, you know, if you want rusty, spinning slow drives there's a, a best buy sale on today was what they said and so i thought hmm, let's go and test the performance of the two-year-old drives i have in my basement versus the the new ones we've got here and it turns out that actually the i, I have a i bought a an eight terabyte hitachi 270 dollar 7200 rpm 256 meg cache drive when i first got here so it's you know, it wasn't shucked. It was always shipped as a, a naked drive. And, you know, so theoretically, it's as good as it gets on the consumer side of things. And what was interesting is that that drive, when I put it through uh, some testing with FIO and I used Jim Salter's Ars Technica, how to test your hard drive performance article, I used FIO to do this. So I got in the region of 134 megs right to this drive, which is pretty good. And so then I compared it to a shucked easy store, which runs at 5,400 RPM, and I got 116. So 134 plays 116. Now, for me, the cost difference, you know, the eight terabyte drive that was shucked was about half the price. So for 18 megabytes a second, I, that's fine. Yeah. I think you could argue it's worth considering if these were disks that you were putting in your workstation and you are working from them, okay, maybe I'll hear that argument. But these are going into a RAID. The RAID has its own performance characteristics that also change the math on all of this anyways. And at the end of the day, you're storing items on this that you access infrequently. And when you do, you're likely accessing them over the network, possibly even over Wi-Fi. 
So you have to take the entire use case picture in when you're looking at the speed versus price argument, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, if if you're looking to buy a new drive on Black Friday, my personal advice would be steer away from the 10 terabyte easy stores because they're now hot air drives and uh, go for either the Seagate ones that are 10 terabytes that you can probably find on Amazon Warehouse for 150, 160 bucks a piece, or go for the 12 terabyte easy stores from Best Buy um, because they are helium drives and they run nice and cool and quiet and, uh, you know, it's 12 terabytes. So it's more than 10, isn't it? So <laughs> it's that time of year, the, the leaf blowers are firing up and winter is coming. It's getting cold. Yeah, it is. And I finally hooked up my heating again. You know, I'm very proud of the automations I've built for the heating system in Lady Jupes. I finally got them all plugged back in because what I like to do is during the summer, why not reclaim that space? I pack away the heaters, but I leave the smart plugs plugged in. So that way everything's still talking to home assistant. And then I have a series of automations that will start and stop those heaters based on the temperature in that area matching a condition that the sun is below the horizon. So I have heaters in my bedroom, in the living room, kitchen area, because again, this is a, this is a, it's a bus, right? So the living room and kitchen are essentially one area. And then the upfront driving area has a temperature sensor. My water bay has a temperature sensor and my battery slash electrical bay has a temperature, mostly so I can monitor if that's just getting too hot, but they all have temperature sensors in those areas. And the way the system works is it looks at all of that looks at the individual rooms and it sees what the temperature is in the room and it sees if the sun is above the horizon or below the horizon. And if the sun is below the horizon and the temperature is, say, below, maybe it's the bedroom, so below 67 degrees, the heater comes on. And if it's really cold, I have a, I have like supplemental heaters <laughs> that will kick in to really kind of get it up there because, you know, it's an RV. The walls are like maybe if I'm lucky, six inches thick, probably more like four or five inches thick. So th- it's a thermal loss is a big problem. Last year was our, our best winter in an RV after five years because the, the heating was finally just right. We were really always perfectly comfortable. It'd been really nice. And it had been just a bliss of having automations that just take care of it. You don't even think about it. And all of that, Alex, came to... A chilling end this recent week. Chilling end. <laughs> Who are you going to call, though? Who are you going to call? Myself, right? And it's one of that's what's so awful. And there, I actually had a bit of a down moment during all this. It's like, oh, this isn't working. Dude, this is what I was saying last episode. The perils of self-hosting. Like, if it breaks, you're the one on call. I think you jinxed me. <laughs> I think you jinxed me. So sure enough, the night that I hook up the heaters, I think to myself, well, let's go make it cozy in the bedroom. So I tell home assistant turn on the heaters in the bedroom, you know, get it nice and cozy in there. So, you know, I wanted my wife to walk in and go, oh man, oh yeah, the heaters are back. It's so nice. And sure enough, home assistant reliably fires off the heaters. And I have a, I have an automation that when it gets to 73 degrees in the bedroom, and if it holds that for three minutes to turn off the heaters and I'm in bed, I'm getting all comfortable and I hear the heaters click off. The automation kicked in perfectly to turn off the heaters. I fall asleep. And I wake up right around 2 a.m. And I'm very cold. Like, because it's it was the first night here in the Pacific Northwest where it got into the mid-40s in the middle of the night. And it's, it's all 2 a.m. I wake up because I'm so cold. That's what woke me up, right? So you know it's uncomfortable in the room. And I'm and I'm I'm like, I wake up, I'm like, what the hell's going on? The heaters are hooked up. Like, this isn't supposed to be happening. So I get up and I don't want to disturb my wife. So I go out into the living room, perfectly cozy. Very comfortable. Clearly that the heating automations had been working out in the living room flawlessly. But in the bedroom, of course, not working. So I didn't realize fully the extent of this. I thought, okay, there must have been some mistake. So I opened up Home Assistant. I looked, did I turn my did I turn off the automation? Because I didn't actually check, because I I just assumed I left it on because I always do. Just what you want to be doing at 2 a.m. Oh yeah. So I go into Home Assistant. Oh yeah, look at that. I, I'd left the automation, but I could see the last time it had been triggered was the first week of May because I haven't used the heating since then. So I hit the little play button that fires off the automation immediately, and the heaters kick right on. I'm like, okay, okay, it's, it's working. It's obviously working. I go back to bed, temperature slowly coming up. I wake up at 6 a.m., and the room is cold again. What I realized was, 
very reliably, the turn the heaters off automation works, but the turn the heaters on doesn't work. So they turn off, but they don't ever turn on. And I didn't really get this. Of course, it's like 6 a.m. and I hadn't slept well, but I'm dumbfounded, right? Because the turn things off automation is essentially just the reverse of the turn things on automation. And one's working and one isn't working. And I, I, I'm i just really perplexed by this. And there was one star-sized difference between them, but I'll get to that in a moment. But let me just say, at first, I was actually a little discouraged that morning. I, I telegrammed you. I was doing a round of Googling. And what I was finding is the recent rapid versions of Home Assistant, God bless him, have made it so that almost every release, something in automations kind of goes sideways for somebody out there in the internet because of all these use cases and edge cases. And so you just find all of this backlog of stuff that's no longer relevant to troubleshooting anymore. All these forum posts and everything because Home Assistant so quickly outdates it that something that was posted in April is just really generally not very useful anymore. And the error was so generic that Nearly everything I searched for kind of just showed up, you know, automation not firing off, not triggering, you know, the kind of basic crap you get with that. You just don't really get any help. It's like Googling something for Windows. Unless you have the very specific error code, you just end up in a tar pit of just useless information. Yep. So I go to work, you know, I figure I'll I'll think about it, but I won't I won't stress out too much about it. And I'm chatting with my wife. And she's like, so there's really no other differences between the off and on automations, really? And you got to bear in mind, like, I created these more than a year ago, right? So I don't implicitly remember them very well. So I open up the two automations, the off automations and the on automations, side by side. And what I realize is the off automations run 24 hours a day, regardless of what the sun is doing. The idea being that if it gets above this temperature, I don't want the heat on. I don't want the heaters on. So just I don't care what time of day it is, turn the heaters off. But the turn on automations only trigger if the condition of the sun is below the horizon and if that's met. And if that isn't met, the automations don't trigger. So with that realization, I kind of refined my Googling and I found a two-year-old Reddit thread that actually was my problem. So I had to change the condition. Now, the conditions are these options that prevent execution of an automation unless all of the quote-unquote conditions are satisfied. So one of my conditions is that the temperature is at a certain threshold and that the sun is below the horizon. And, you know, I use the crap out of that for, like, all my outdoor lights. A bunch of the lights inside the RV are set to come on 30 minutes after sunset, and those are all working just fine. It's only the two heating automations for the bedroom. But for some reason, kind of still unknown to me, I had to just make a change in how I was checking the state of the sun. Stick with me for a second. The sun in Home Assistant is also essentially a sensor. And so I went from using the built-in condition of the sun, which is built into the automation GUI wizard. You can say sun below horizon. It's just a built-in option. I had to take that out, and I had to instead go get the state of the sun sensor And then I had to manually specify in just uh, plain language when the state of the sensor is below underscore horizon. And when going from a state of the sensor as a condition, the automation started working again as expected. And it seems to be maybe something in the logic of how the graphical interface builds that automation with the sunset condition. So essentially you end up using for, if you want something to reliably work based on the sunrise and sunset in Home Assistant, you need to use the sensor state, not the built-in sun condition. It's confusing. Even the language around it is confusing. And I still kind of have like questions like, why did this only bite me now? Right? I've had this automation for over a year. This Reddit thread's two years old. So somebody ran into this two years ago. And I don't really know when it broke. It must have broke during the summer when I had the heaters actually disconnected and I just didn't notice that the smart plugs were clicking on or off. I, you know, I don't notice that. I'd leave them plugged in all the time. So when did it break? I don't know. Was it some particular update? I don't know. And why do my other automations that are using the original sun condition work fine still? And then I guess my last question is, are they eventually going to break on me? I think we can refer to this as like the home assistant half-life, you know, like they have an entropy of of decay that just sort of happens. Automations just stop working for some reason, and sometimes it's not totally logical as to why and when it happens. Yeah, yeah. I I felt a little like um, less confident 
in the setup all of a sudden. And then just unrelated, Alex, just a couple of days later, I did an update. And that night, Home Assistant locked up on me. So I got the heating working for one night. And then the next night, Home Assistant locked up on me. None of the automations ran. I couldn't even get to the dashboard. I ended up just rebooting the entire host because it, it needed to reboot for some security updates anyways. But so for it's the second night, so one night it works. The next night, no heat again throughout the entire place now because Home Assistant just locked up. It hasn't done that in forever. And I had to reboot the whole host. It was very reliable for me. Like I don't have any any lockups or anything like that. But uh, I do find that sometimes automations just stop working. And, and I don't notice that they stop working straight away. And I don't know whether it's the the pace of updates, like you, you mentioned, um, breaking stuff, or whether it's just that I've introduced another chain somewhere else. Like it maybe almost needs, uh, like a testing framework for these automations, like a, a CI build passing, like sort of set of badges or something for each automation somehow. I'm, I'm not sure how that would even work, but, uh, I don't want to make a change in one place and then have it break something somewhere else. So I need a way that when I dust this dinosaur bone over here, it doesn't, <laughs> the tail doesn't fall off the dinosaur at the back, you know? Uh, it's a tricky one though. Tricky problem. I think that could be doable, Alex. I just got a supervisor add-on that checks the home assistant configuration against any new version. So it takes your existing config. It looks at the new release config defaults and does a compare and tells you if there's going to be any issues. And I could see something like that expanding to automations. Yeah, particularly given all the changes they made in the the latest like birthday release to the YAML structure and that kind of thing. I could see that being useful. All things considered, I am happier today with Home Assistant than I have ever been. I continue to be extremely enthusiastic about it. I am constantly integrating new things with it. I went ahead and just recently integrated the studio's Amazon Echoes, which which support Amazon Guard. And now I can toggle the guard status inside Home Assistant and all of the Echoes do not disturb switches and other features show up as sensors and options in Home Assistant now. It's really cool. <laughs> so I I just have been just bringing more and more into it. Also, I've recently learned that the, the Ring API integration is pretty decent. You can bring in still images from Ring cameras into Home Assistant you can also bring in their motion sensors into Home Assistant. You can get a little Lovelace card that shows you the last time they detected motion. And it's it's all great because the way Home Assistant works with all this stuff is at the end of the day, they're all just like sensors. So you can just build just build everything around these. And it feels like this, it's still to this day, it feels like this great unifier of all these rando products that these different vendors make. And I bring it all together in Home Assistant. Well, let me just take a moment and thank a cloud guru. You know, a cloud guru has a systemd course now. It might be worth checking out because systemd has taken over the Linux landscape and you may know some of the basics, but there's a lot more it can do. It's got some components that you can put together as well, which we'll mention later on in the show that can make your life a little bit easier. So go to a cloudguru.com or use the link in our show notes to take you directly to this course. It's a course designed to demystify the sometimes difficult and admittedly deep topic of systemd you might be using systemd today but are you really taking full advantage of it there's an opportunity here to learn more use the link in our show notes 5.8 hours of content 40 total lessons and eight hands-on labs link in the show notes and thanks to cloudguru.com all right it's time for some listener feedback pete writes in about his obd2 data yeah he says hey guys on one of the jb shows a while back chris explained his usage of his OBD2 readings from his vehicle to save him some money on fuel. I was wondering if Alex does something similar and if you have any interest in to capture this data and maybe put it into a self-hosted solution like Grafana. So I don't know if either one of us are actively capturing our ODB2 data from our cars, but I know we both have done things with them. Well, I was. I was using this thing called the Automatic, which you put me onto actually, Chris. And uh, it wasn't self-hosted. It was an entirely proprietary thing. And it used to talk to if this, then that and log all my trips in a spreadsheet. And it was it was kind of interesting. It didn't really do a lot that was, you know, life shatteringly interesting. I would be really interested in a device that went into my OBD2 port and could talk to my Grafana and InfluxDB setup. But then you have to factor in that it needs a cellular connection as well as GPS. And 
very quickly it becomes quite a complicated device. So unless you already have a LAN in your vehicle, like I do, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not everyone's house is their car. <laughs> yeah, I I actually mostly just use this for real time data. It is so aggravating how much information my truck's computer inside the RV has that is not displayed on the dashboard. I kind of get it for your average commuter car, maybe, you know, just a couple of dummy lights and some dials, fine. But in a super duty engine that's massive, that has all these different thermal things and just like all these sensors that they've built in, the, the car computer, the truck engine computer is collecting an incredible amount of information and doing nothing with it. And I find that so aggravating. So I did get just some crappy one, some Bluetooth ODB2 dongle that you plug in. Every car manufactured in the United States since 2012, or sold in the United States at least since 2012, has these ports. You plug it in there and different vehicles will give you different levels of information. So you need to pair that with a device that understands the information from your vehicle's engine. A lot of the apps that you can get for your phone that talk to these dongles have a database of vehicles, and then they can kind of do something with the information. And I put that up on either an iOS device or an Android device as I'm going down the road, especially when I'm going over passes. And I get all my coolant information, all of my air intake information. I get my engine performance, my, my turbo boost information. I get the transmission temperature, the oil temperature. I get all the sensor information that is never displayed to me on my dash. And I've never thought about capturing that. But when Pete wrote in with this email, kind of made me realize this would be a fascinating way to monitor the long-term health of an engine, wouldn't it? Is taking all of this data and graphing it and then seeing trend lines change over time. That's really the power of a good graph, isn't it? It's just seeing that that overall trend. I mean, the, the humidity in my basement, to come back to a previous episode, I was able to spot different storms throughout the year and, and notice the trend that in the summer it was getting too high because I had it graphed every day. And I think if you're able to take a decent set of readings, or actually meaningful readings, I mean, I don't know what you'd necessarily do with oil temperature, although maybe you'd see that over six months it creeps up by an average of three or four degrees. Who knows? Certainly an interesting thing, and if anybody has any, any solutions in the audience, please write in selfhosted.show slash contact. Optimus Gray writes in, he wants us to put on our consulting hats. So uh, get your day job hat on there, Alex. He says, I was looking at my Docker list and I have four MariaDBs running. One is my personal website. I have C-File, I have Git-T and NextCloud. Should I work on merging these into one database, one's database server, or is it worth keeping four copies or more of the same image running? What a great question. There is no right answer to this question, I don't think. <laughs> nope, I agree. You ask three different people, you get three different answers. Uh, so, that, But there are two main schools of thought, right? So my assumption is that all of these different things are using the same database engine underneath, whether that's MySQL, Postgres, whatever. It, it doesn't really matter what the database is. For a while, for, for a couple of years, I, I actually just ran one MySQL container and then just manually went in through the MySQL command line and created new databases, added new users, scoped them correctly, and learned a little bit about, you know, the MySQL command line. But lately, I've been spinning up a lot of stuff for the show on Linode and doing a lot of stuff for family members and friends and stuff like that, and, and just testing out a lot of stuff for the podcast, really. And so I don't want to have to futz with that every time. And and most containers that you spin up, most database containers have the option to feed in through environment variables the username and password for that specific database table that you need to create for the app. And so lately I've moved into uh, creating a database instance per app. It's a bit wasteful in terms of system resources, but I think it's, you know, in terms of simplicity, it's a lot easier to manage in terms of backups, in terms of administration, initial setup. One database per container is my current strategy. Yeah, it really is what you're trying to get out of your setup. Do you want simplicity and the ability to just easily tear it down and throw things back up again? Or do you want efficiency? And you could also argue that if you only have one instance of a database running, not only do you save system resources, but you theoretically reduce your tack surface, right? So there's not as many vulnerabilities when there's something that shows up in MariaDB. You have only one instance instead of four. You have one version instead of potentially four different versions, depending on how the containers are set up. 
So while there is advantage to it, I think I'm going to side with Alex here is because we kind of used to do the same exact thing is we had one database server, both for our cloud instances and for our local instances. And then all of the containers and applications would use those. And it it worked fine. But we did run into a couple of instances where the application expected it was the sole use of the database or there were several scenarios where it became a lot more overhead to maintain that one instance and reconfigure software on the regular. And what we ended up doing when we kind of redid things recently is we did the same thing as, as Alex just suggested. We just went ahead and did a database for each one of the applications we're running that pulls it down. And it does mean that I have a couple of instances of the same database software running. And I don't find that ideal, but because they're not open to the general public, they're not even open to the general network, I don't consider the attack surface issue to be as serious as I would have back in the day when these were entire VMs or they were entire physical servers that were on the LAN and maybe even connected to the public internet, God forbid. And in that scenario, I would consider the efficiency and the lower attack surface a, a much uh, higher, you know, important consideration. But when you're running it for yourself on your own land, you maybe have very limited control of what can talk to it publicly. I think the risk scenario goes down and then the convenience and reproducibility factor becomes more important. And I say, just let it be and, and run what each one individually and save yourself the hassle. The other thing is if you want to port one service to a different system, you know, let's say you wanted to move Nextcloud from your LAN to a Linode instance, for example, you haven't got to then worry about MySQL commands to export and dump databases and all that kind of stuff. You just move the Docker app volumes and you're good to go. Jay writes in with our last email this week, and it's a frustrating one. He has an issue where when his clients go to sleep, they're unable to remount the NFS on his FreeNAS. He tried Samba, but it's not ideal with FreeNAS in his opinion, and he wanted a solution to automatically remount these. We've mentioned AutoFS in the past, but he said it's running into some deficiencies. And so I knew this has got to be a problem that other people run into, where you have a laptop or you have a desktop, it goes into power saving mode, you bring it back up, and now your mounts are dead. They just will not reconnect despite all of the tools that are supposed to make them do it. I have some advice for you, Jay, and anyone else that runs into this. This is an area where it's worth learning a little bit of SystemD because SystemD has a facility for this that is network aware. And then it notices that when your network connection comes back up, which is actually what's happening when you're waking from sleep, it'll auto remount those file systems. And I have resources in the show notes to help with that. Well, it finally happened. Can you believe it? ESXi on a Raspberry Pi. Now are you taking it seriously? No. <laughs> oh, I thought this might be it. Yeah, ESXi. Now, it's a fling edition, which means it's not really meant for production, but I think they're really serious about it. And I'm going to try it out. There is some current limitations I thought maybe people should be aware of that are kind of important, but I think this is huge. Is it the limitation that I read where you can't actually run any VMs on it? <laughs> no. No, it's, it's the issue is there's no local storage at the moment, not even USB. Not a big deal at all, that one. <laughs> no, you just do it over NFS. It's fine. It's fine. Oh, okay. you just, yeah, you do it over it. But it's, it is ESXi 7. You do have to have UEFI boot, and so there's a few extra steps you have to go through. I'll have a link in the show notes to how to walk through all of that. But all said and done, you can run four or five ARM VMs on this. You have about six gigs of RAM left over after you have VMware in the core OS. It uses somewhere in the neighborhood of just under two gigs. But if you have an eight gigabyte edition Raspberry Pi 4, you could still run a couple of VMs and you get a lot of the you know more enterprise grade features like vMotion. But also you could use this to just access VMFS file systems where in the past you'd have to have a massive, expensive x86 server just to mount a disk that you need to recover files from. Now you can do it with a Raspberry Pi. Additionally, if you are learning VMware, you know, you say you're getting a job somewhere that is using ESXi infrastructure and you don't understand VMware, well, you don't have a lot of options that aren't super expensive to learn on. But now you could go get a $75 Raspberry Pi and actually run an image from them that gives you a lot of that experience and lets you plug in with the wider VMware infrastructure. And, you know, there's got to be some decent backup scenarios I'm not even thinking with this. So, I mean, you're going to be limited to ARM VMs, but, you you know, you imagine something like this, Alex, and you say the Raspberry Pi 8, and now all of a sudden you could see how this could be really great, like at the edge or on-premises virtualization to run several services on a low-power little 
Raspberry Pi, but, you know, you get the additional benefit of everything being in VMware so you can manage it with your entire tool set. And I don't know, I just I could see this going somewhere kind of cool. It's early days, but I could see it getting pretty neat. The cynic in me thinks the only reason VMware are doing this is because of Apple. Well, and I listened to a, a podcast, which we have a link in the show notes, too, that talked about a lot of the larger server arm boards that are these massive arm systems, you know, minimum 16 core, uh, you know, 160 gigs of RAM minimum kind of system, like massive arm boxes and go up to several terabytes of RAM and whatnot, and 24 cores and 32 cores. One of the things they were saying, though, is that, again, it's the problem of developing software for those big data center arm boxes developers need something that is approachable that they can execute ARM code on. And the nice thing about VMware here is they're abstracting out the details of, are you specifically supporting the Raspberry Pi's video card and network controller? Or can you just deploy for VMware and just focus on creating really fast ARM code and then eventually move that up to the cloud? And I think that's part of their strategy is is to give people a development environment they can run on their LAN, throw in their bag to deploy on ARM in the cloud running VMware. You know where I could see this being useful? If you're a traveling, you know, sales person or pre-sales engineer or something, whip out a Raspberry Pi in a sales meeting and boom, you know, if you don't want to use AWS for some reason, I don't know. You know, that's going to be a thing, right? People showing up with pies and little virtual environments. I'm not a big VMware guy anymore, but I did as part of an old job as a previous life run uh, an infrastructure on VMware. And so I get kind of excited about this. If this was usable for, say, solidly four VMs, I could see have gone, I may have gone this way. I could have gone this way potentially. Instead of having four pies, I could have had maybe one eight gig pie. I view this very much as a signal of intent rather than something that's useful right now. Yeah. Something I'm definitely going to keep an eye on. And I'll, I'll probably wait for a couple of builds because they're, they're getting a lot of community feedback and they're rolling out releases. So I'm going to wait for a release or two to land. And then I think I'm going to try it on my eight gig pie. Now, we found a pick for you. This one's called Archivey, and it's a self-hosted knowledge repository that allows you to safely preserve useful content that contributes to your own personal knowledge bank. Yeah, imagine like sucking down an entire website and all of its assets into your own knowledge bank. That's a pretty cool idea, and I like that it ties in with Pocket. If you happen to use that, you can set it up so that anything you put in Pocket, it just sucks all down into your own personal database. I think the UI to navigate it is a little simplistic, but it gets the job done. And it's a really super cool concept if you are an archivist who likes to just pull down all of the things for your research. I've definitely had projects where we link to stuff and then that website goes offline or the story changes. And I really had wish I'd archived an original version. Yeah, having that local copy of stuff is very useful. I, I can't remember what the show was, but I saw another example of Netflix or was it or maybe Disney censoring, I think it was The Simpsons, so it must be Disney, censoring episodes of The Simpsons that are on Disney+. Plus. Whereas if you had the DVD on your shelf, they could never change it. So it's a similar kind of mindset. It seems like the project is fairly active and the developer intends to add integrations with Hacker News and Reddit. So if you have stories on there that you've upvoted, you could potentially integrate that in with this and just have it go and automatically archive that story for you, which I really like that idea. So I'm keeping my eye on this one. You know, I'm interested because it runs out of Docker, but it also requires Elasticsearch. So there is a little bit of uh, no batteries included setup required. So just bear that in mind. As always, you can find different ways to get in touch with us at selfhosted.show slash contact. I'm on Twitter at Ironic Badger. I'm there at Chris Lass and the show is at Self Hosted Show. Thanks for listening, everyone. That was selfhosted.show slash 30. Now, before we get to your self-confessed home home kit love fest, I just wanted to talk about a little bit of barbecuing I did this weekend. Oh, yes. I saw the pictures of you getting started, but I didn't see a picture of the results, which, which I sometimes think means it didn't turn out good. <laughs> no, they were plenty tasty. I mean, there's none left. We made some ribs this weekend. And uh, so I, I fired up the smoker, got it set to a nice 230 solid using this um, Thermoworks signals thing that I have. And it's it's just, it takes all the guesswork out of it. You know, I want my charcoal at a certain temperature. I tap the number in on the app on my phone and, you know, there's a little fan that connects to the grate at the bottom. And it just, it's, it's magic. It's great. It's so good. That's so cool. I've been experimenting with how to monitor the temperature of the griddle using a little laser reader. Well, they're fun. Yeah. But, oh, yeah, being able to set it on your phone and then just have the fan kick in. 
I'll tell you, I, I had a, a real moment. I was in the forest. I, I went and did some mountain biking whilst they were cooking. <laughs> oh my God. And Catherine had to take the So we did two, two, one with these ribs. We did two hours unwrapped, two hours wrapped, and then an hour to finish them off unwrapped. Um, but that middle, that first sort of two hour bit where she, where they needed to be wrapped, I was in the forest on my bike. And uh, so I, I get a, a notification on my phone when the temperature goes outside of 10 degrees either side of the target. And I'm there I am mountain biking down this trail in the middle of nowhere and just suddenly bing bong, bing bong. <laughs> Catherine's taking the ribs out and put them in the foil. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, that is. It'll, you see, you, you can uh, bike easy knowing that the ribs are being taken care of. Yeah. I was just going to use this um, this space in the post show to say that well, I'm not actually advocating for myself. I think not enough people are taking HomeKit seriously. And I've tried to make this case before, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but um, I just recently went through the process of reconnecting HomeKit on our iOS devices with Home Assistant, which is shockingly easy to do and means every single HomeKit device becomes a Home Assistant device. And every Home Assist sensor, every Home Assistant Everything, anything that Home Assist automations, scripts, all of it are now HomeKit devices that are available to uh, all your iOS devices. But now, son of a gun, Alex, if they haven't built in video feed support into tvOS, so I can now on my remote call up cameras in Home Assistant and it shows up on my Apple TV. And I can pull up feeds now on the Apple TV with Siri just by holding down the button on the remote and say, Show me living room camera and boom. And the ring, because I have the ring camera pulled into Home Assistant too, I can pull up the ring cameras. And Home Assistant's none the wiser. So when you're when you're in the Home Assistant app, it shows the camera feeds in there, just thinks they're HomeKit cameras. It means that pretty much anything that works on HomeKit will work with Home Assistant. And it also means that the HomePods, I think, become the best voice assistant for Home Assistant. Because not only are they the most private, but they're they're shilling the least amount of things to you. And Siri, by far, has the best microphone. So if you have a TV going or a white noise machine in your bedroom, the other home assistants just cannot cope with it. But Siri, with her freaking microphone array, hears you. And with it being on, with HomeKit being on the LAN and not having to ping a cloud API, it just talks immediately to the home assistant and home assistant executes it. It There is zero delay when using HomeKit as an interface to home assistant. Additionally, Alex, it means that any HomeKit automation you create is a home assistant automation. So you have the easy to, easy to use Apple UI on automations that are actually triggering events on home assistant. And it means you can use all of the iOS shortcuts with Home Assistant. So any of the stuff in, in the iOS shortcuts that uses HomeKit, you now can do anything in home, in home Assistant. I mean, I know it's a lot of home. I'm saying a lot of home. But it's so cool, the integrations. It's so far beyond anything you can do with, with the Alexa platform or the Google Assistant platform. Well, the Google Assistant platform gets really close, but the all on LAN is a big one for me. So why did you say at the start then it's not for you? Sounds perfect. Well, where I was going to go with this, but then I got I got sidetracked, is I could see a world where an individual isn't necessarily interested in all of the fiddling with Home Assistant. I think HomeKit would be a decent, less advanced home automation system if you're already in the iOS ecosystem. That's the big caveat here. But I would recommend it over the Alexa ecosystem or the Google Assistant ecosystem because HomeKit so easily transitions to Home Assistant. So if you start with HomeKit, you're on LAN, you're encrypted, you're not required to use vendor apps. And if at any point you decide you do want to go to Home Assistant, all of those devices will just move right over. Home Assistant becomes your HomeKit hub and it just works seamlessly. Who'd have thought Apple would be the one to nail it? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. You know, if you're gonna, if somebody wants to dip their toe and they're not ready to go all in on Home Assistant and build a machine, and they have if they have an iPhone or an iPad or something, steer them in the direction of HomeKit because then it's an easy migration, you know. And I I feel like we as a community don't do that. We don't even consider it because it's Apple and it's HomeKit and it just immediately puts up bias walls and nobody thinks about it. But I, don't know, I just wish people give it another consideration. I know it's not cool, it's not nerdy, it's not super geeky, trendy, elite nerd thing, but for people that just need to get into it, it's pretty great. And the nice thing about HomeKit now with iOS 14 is it'll figure out what devices you have, like lights and locks, and it 
recommends really sensible, simple automations for you automatically. Like, how about after everyone leaves, leaves the house, I turn off the lights for you automatically. And then the first iPhone to return, which lights would you like me to turn on for you? And you answer that during the setup wizard once and those automations are in and they work forever. Speaking of, did you buy the new iPhone yet or did pre-order it or whatever? No, no. Um, I, I might because I'm on the upgrade program and the iPhone 12 has exceptional cellular support. It has all the LTE bands and all of the 5G bands that exist currently, which means it would be a hell of a tethering device. It would be like choice. And so for somebody who's always looking for mobile data, that opens up a lot of options for me. So I might consider it just on those grounds and because I'm in the upgrade program, but I haven't done it yet. I like to sit back. I'm in no rush. I don't have to have it first day. You know, I'm no rush. So I'll just sit back, read the review, see what people say. And then maybe in a month or two, when the inventories are back up, I'll place my order and not even worry about it. I just felt like the iPhone 12 this year was just a bit meh overall. Yeah. I mean, they really hyped the 5G stuff, but if that isn't appealing to you, it's sort of like, well, cameras are better, but I actually find the camera arrangement way more confusing this year than ever before. I think if they put the uh, like a minimum 90 or 120 hertz display in there, my OnePlus 7T, which I just broke the screen on, which I'm really sad about, uh, gave me the perfect excuse to order the OnePlus 8T. So uh, <laughs> uh, that's coming tomorrow, I think. Oh, oh interesting. I'd like to, like to hear what you think of it. 120 hertz display, USB-C, 65 watt charging. Yep. The only thing it doesn't have that I wish it did is wireless charging. Uh, Catherine's Pixel has that and she loves it. Mm-hmm. I had it on the Nexus 5 years ago and I loved it and I've not had a phone with it since. So it would be nice to see that come back, but it's not a deal breaker. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I prefer to have it, but it's not a deal breaker. I do use it. I use it on my, my bed stand and I use it on my desk pretty consistently, but I could get on if I didn't have it. For me, I I kind of around the iPhone 7, I just decided what I would do was make iOS my primary phone platform and then every other Pixel generation, I pick up a Pixel and I kind of just stay looped in on Android that way. Catherine's Pixel 3, which is what uh, she has, I upgraded it to Android 11 a couple of weeks ago and it was awful. The uh, The volume buttons uh, were doing weird stuff, like you press it once and it would go all the way to max without stopping. Uh, it would just reboot, like audio. Like She has a regular Pixel 3? Regular Pixel 3, yeah. That's mine too, yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I ended up having to downgrade it for her to 10 point whatever. So I guess she that's the version. That Pixel will be on forever now. Yeah, I think what I'll do is I'll probably wait till next year sometime and I'll pick up a, the Pixel 5 for a discount. I'm a Google Fi customer, so I you know usually deals roll around. Oh, yeah, because you know Google are going to put that thing on sale. There's no point paying full price for it. No, and I'm again, I mean, it's, they've gotten so good. I'm at the point where I'm no longer in a rush. Uh, I have like business reasons that I want all of the LTE signals. It's funny, I'm not even really getting, I won't even be getting the iPhone 12 for its 5G support. I mean, I'll use it when it's available, but I really want it for its, all its LTE band support. <laughs> it's such a nerdy thing, but um, they don't generally put all the LTE bands in there and then a 4x4 antenna in a phone, um, especially a phone that gets all day battery life. That's just really kind of unheard of. Do you think that's a Tim Apple move so that he has to make less units or less SKUs to go around the world or whatever? And it's also they're going back to their buddy Qualcomm for the cell chips again and not Intel. Qualcomm has a brand new fancy batch of of modems out. Interesting. So they got the latest and greatest. Yeah. 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 I think it's going to be nice, but I'm in no rush. And 5G, let's face it, right now is kind of pointless. I honestly have more hopes on Starlink than I do 5G. Yeah. 